This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Sarah Bonstein, CFO of Avaxis. You are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 334. It's, it's one thing to put together financial slides in a deck and go talk to investors about it. It's another thing to put together an entire deck. And I think it's also important for people to realize that, hey, different stories are, can be told different ways to different types of investors as well. So don't get discouraged. Um, you know, I mean, Fuse has successfully raised over $300 million since, since the company was founded, most of it in the past, uh, you know, 36 months. Um, but for every investor that has invested in Fuse, Fuse has probably talked to like five or six others that, that, that passed on that opportunity. So um, not every investor wants to invest in every single company. And I think one of the things that, that anybody who's out in the fundraising field needs to realize is that um, you have to kiss a lot of frogs. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. In this episode, we speak to Brian Day, CFO of Fuse. It was only a few years ago, prior to joining Fuse, that Brian got bumped out of a CFO role when he was asked to serve as CEO. We ask Brian about his CEO career chapter and explore a number of his other earlier tours of duty as a finance leader after these words from our sponsor. Just as a house needs a good foundation, your business needs a solid technology foundation. At Workday, a different approach to finance technology is giving growing mid-size organizations a distinct advantage. Workday's flexible architecture means that when business conditions change, finance can easily make changes to business processes. To learn more about how a finance system from Workday supports mid-size organizations from the ground up, visit us at Workday.com. Workday, built for the future. a cloud-based unified communications platform. Brian, welcome. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Certainly an interesting company we want to learn more about. But first, as we always do, we'd like to ask you for a few career milestones that you feel help prepare you uh, for a CFO role. And, of course, we're asking you to look back over time and, and tell us how you came up the ranks. Sure. Well, I've got a couple of very interesting ones, and I don't have to go back uh, too too far into uh, the annals of time for one of them. Uh, prior to joining Fuse last December, I spent two years as CEO of a company called Aperion, which was a venture-backed company in the mobile application management space. And I originally joined them as CFO back in 2011, became CEO in uh, 2014, before we sold it back last December. So. I will say that uh, nothing prepares you better to be a CFO than actually spending a couple of years as CEO, 
where you actually get to see uh, the results of the decisions that the CFOs make. Um, now, I, I know that not everybody has the opportunity to do that, so I, I consider myself somewhat blessed to have uh, had the opportunity to be the CEO of a, of a company. But uh, I will say it was it was great experience for me, and, and, and it certainly um, the end result for me is that I, I look at the, the decisions I make as CFO a little differently now uh, when I when I understand what the, the execution part of it looks like. The big milestone for me, I think, was uh, you know, the first nine years of my career I spent in commercial banking, uh, working on leveraged buyout financing, things like that, and I uh, wound up taking a, a job as CFO of one of my portfolio companies. And going from a large financial institution, I was with I was with Fleet Financial Group, to a uh, to a smaller it was a sixty million dollar semiconductor capital equipment manufacturing company, um, was a huge change. And I think it's it's one of those changes that it's difficult to prepare yourself for because I think the, my first week on the job, I went into the CEO that hired me and said, "Hey, I think I need to make a change in the IT group," and he said, "Do it." Um, and for, for anybody who spent time in working for any big company, you know. Do it just doesn't aren't two words that really exist in, in large enterprises. So it was something that uh, was a bit of a shocker for me. But uh, you know, I learned uh, that uh, your decisions have have meanings in the long run. So uh, don't make decisions lightly. But at the same time, uh, you, know, you need to be prepared to execute when uh, when the time is right. I want to circle back uh, regarding your role as a CEO. Now, was that a role you had always aspired to, or was it sort of a a unique place and time where, you know, here you were familiar with the company and you were at the right place and the, the timing was there? It was a combination of things. I think I was definitely the right person at the right time um, and uh, had kind of risen through the ranks and, and taken on really the COO role of the company. And I actually had become president of the company the year before as well. Um, you know, and, and I had the opportunity after the sale of that company to do it again for another another small company. Um, but at the end of the day, I think my decision was really to be to go to back to the CFO role, given the market opportunity that I saw that the company I'm with right now, Fuse, has. Um, you know, I, I think in, in talking to people, and, and again, as all CFOs know, networking is, is, is the name of the game. But and, and as I was networking in the the, the market uh, as as the sale was nearing completion. Um, you know, the sense I was getting was that, yeah, you could be CEO again, but it would probably be for a fairly small software company. And, you know, it, 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 if anybody that's been a CFO or CEO or, or any kind of uh, you know, officer of a small software company, t slugging it out in that environment becomes quite tiring after a while. So, um, you know, I look at the opportunity here at Fuse. It's a, it's a huge market, a $45 billion annual market by some estimates. Um, and decided that uh, it would be a great opportunity. So that's why I decided to go ahead and, and take the opportunity here at Fuse. Can, can you share with us what, what piece of advice would you have for other CFOs who might see that uh, opportunity? Is there something that, that uh, you felt you were tested uh, in, in a certain area more than before? And certainly the CEO is so much broader in, in, in a way, correct? It really is. Um, I guess the advice I would give is, is make sure your mind is wide open. Um, you know, we, we, anybody who's been CFO for 20 to 25 years has probably gotten pretty good at it. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been CFO to 20, for 20 to 25 years. Um, but, you know, what, what you're really good at doesn't necessarily mean that you're great at doing the other things. So, you know, a, a good CEO uh, has to be pretty good at everything, um, but maybe not an expert in any one thing. 
Um, so, you know, CFOs tend to be experts on the finance side and maybe not as strong in, in engineering and marketing and sales. So, you know, what I learned in that role was, um, you know, take my CFO skills, um, lean on those, but also be as open-minded as I can to learn as much as I can about the other parts of the business. Uh, but, tr- but also try to bring the skills you have as a CFO to those areas. So, you know, when you're in, when you're in marketing meetings or talking to analysts, you know, you have to resist a little bit the temptation to fall back into CFO jargon, but there's not, that doesn't mean you can't apply what you've learned as a CFO to those types of conversations. Because I think people kind of appreciate hearing from a, from a finance person, um, you know, what, what their opinion is about uh, something that they're working on at that point in time. Because at the end of the day, if you really think about it, every decision made in a business comes down to dollars and cents, and, 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 and it really should be measured. And who better to measure it than someone who's, who's got a CFO background? Okay, so when you arrived at Hughes, here you have this fairly unique uh, resume, and you step into your current role as CFO. What is the kind of job you envision for yourself? What I envisioned uh, was exactly what I found when I got here. Um, it's like a lot of companies have been backed by uh, you know uh, in- investors in the past. They invested very heavily in in sales and marketing, and, and they had started to invest in, in the back office and finance and things like that. But, but uh, you know, let's face it, venture investors don't invest in financial systems first and then sales second. It's just the opposite. They invest in sales and marketing first and then financial systems second once, they, once they've come to the realization that they've got a, 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 you know, a hot company, for, for lack of a better term. So what I got, when I got here, what I expected to, to see was um, – you know, systems that were in the process of being implemented that were probably catching up a little bit to the to the the sales machine, and, and it, it was a it was it was and continues to be a, a huge sales machine here at, at Fuse, and it's a very effective sales machine. Um, but on the system side, you know, they they had they implemented some 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 fairly uh, elaborate software tools that were just in the process of coming up to speed. So, um, in, in a sense, some of those decisions decisions had been made for me already, which was good. Uh, and a lot of the job that I've had to do since I've been here these past nine months is really focused more on execution. And so what have, what have you done today to, uh, to begin moving your team in the direction you wanted? Did you reorganize finance? Yeah, I did reorganize. I made some changes in the financial team here um, and, 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 and kind of refocused some of the, some of the priorities on what, what it was that we were trying to accomplish, uh, moved some roles around so that, so that people were, were doing the things that they thought needed to be done, identified some of the real talented people that, that may not have been um, you know, celebrated or promoted internally as much as they could have been and, 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 and tasked them with some responsibilities. And what I have found throughout my career is if you find people that are smart and willing to work hard, um, and you give them responsibilities, they will respond favorably. Um, and sometimes it can be a little scary, right? If, if you find a, you know, a kid who's two or three years at a college or business school that doesn't have a lot of experience but is hungry and willing to work hard, you've got to let them run and be willing to let them make some mistakes. And, and that happens. But at the end of the day, I think you, you, you come out with a, you better people working for you and a better company in the long run as well. So can you share with us a little bit about uh, Fuse and its competitive landscape today and how its offerings have, a, have an edge in the market, perhaps? Sure. So, so those, for those that don't know, we're in the unified communication as a service space, which is kind of a long-winded way of saying we provide you know, cloud-based communication and collaboration services to enterprises. 
Um, you know, we compete with the companies you'd expect us to compete with, the Cisco's, Microsoft's, there's a couple of uh, smaller publicly traded companies as well in the space. Um, I would say the, the edge that Fuse has and we continue to have is that our roots are in voice. Um, and voice, if you really think about it, the, the, if you think about the whole SaaS world, um, you know, voice is not something that was offered as a service until the last few years. And the reason for that is because it's difficult. Um, and, and that is, it not only is, is voice difficult, but the, the networks that the company, that enterprises are operating with weren't necessarily mature enough to handle quality voice until the last few years. So it's really the last part of, you know, enterprise, uh, you know, software that's moving uh, in, in, into the cloud. Um, and the fact that we started with voice, which is, as I said, the toughest part of the service to provide, gives us a leg up on the, on the competitors. I think what we have found is that when competing with large enterprises that are trying to move into our space, they struggle with getting the voice part of it right. And that's something that we continue to fall back on. It's something that's, uh, that's our expertise. So what, what are the key metrics that you're paying close attention to to make sure this firm's growing the way you want it to? Well, I'm always about you know customer satisfaction, and 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 uh, I've you know, I've been that way since even before I was CEO or in my in my prior position. I think uh, you know at the end of the day, if you don't have delighted customers, you don't have a business. So I think your whatever metrics you have has to really start with how happy are your customers. So any type of customer stat score, we have we have a, a we have some very good customer stat scoring systems here at Fuse. Um, which I view as, you know, any, any type of metrics tend to still be somewhat trailing indicators, um, but they're still good indicators of how happy your customers are. Then there's the ultimate trailing indicator, which is churn, um, which is something that I obviously track very closely as well, and, and especially in a, in a company like Fuse where, you know, if you think about what it is that we're selling and what the, what the implementation cycles can look like, our cost of acquiring a customer is fairly high. So, um, the higher your cost of acquiring a customer, the lower your churn rate better be because you better have a long customer life cycle in order to uh, you pay that uh, investment back. So, you know, churn is obviously something I look at very closely. Um, NPS scores we look at very closely. Um, MTTR, which is you know, mean time to resolve, um, we look at those types of things very closely as well. So, you know, I, tend to, I would tend to say that the metrics that I track most closely are really those around uh, you know, customer sat. Okay, I'm wondering when you joined Aperion, was it uh, at that time uh, sort of the same weight class of company that Fuse is today? Yeah, no. Um, when I joined Aperion, it was it was um, it was probably I think back to it. Um, they were certainly in, in revenue mode, but not much beyond that. So I would say you know, the revenue was probably sub 10 million per year. Um, Fuse is is an order of magnitude larger than. Through uh, through the second quarter, our revenues are 55 percent ahead of what they were last year, and uh, our, our new business bookings continue to accelerate as well. So um, all all signs are positive in that regard. Wow! All right, so uh, we always like to ask for a finance strategic moment, and you've had a number of CFO tours of duty. We haven't mentioned each of them, but curious what you'd share with us in terms of a, a moment of strategic insight that given your lines of sight into the organization as a finance leader, uh, what would you share with us? Sure. So, so you say I've, got, I've had a number of opportunities, you're right, which means I probably have a, uh, a, some medals and some scars. Um, and and, and I, I tend to reflect on both of those with, uh, with uh, you know, when, when, I, when I think about what I've done in the past. But, you know, uh, I'd say from, from a strategic standpoint, 
what I what I find most effective when I do this everywhere I go is is is, is be as transparent as possible. Um, and essentially, what I, I find happens here, and, and I've done it such a way that you know, at times I've gone into businesses where the the, the CEO retired me and is like, wow, that, that was a lot of information to be sharing with the employee. And you know what? It's never ever backfired on me. Um, and, and, and I find that uh, the, 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 the employees in general can handle a lot more information than a lot of CFOs think they can handle, as long as it's packaged properly and explained properly. Um, and, and people feel empowered when they, when they realize they have the opportunity to positively influence the outcome of the business. So one of the things I did when I first got here a few years was put together essentially 12 KPIs, which is a lot of KPIs, you know, and, and, and I get that. Um, you know, some people feel like two or three is, is the most you want to have, but, but we've got 12 that we look at fairly, fairly closely, and they, they cut across all slots of the business. And every single quarter, I get on a, a, a company-wide call and, and walk through those the KPIs. Um, and then once a year, what I'll do is I'll have something that I call the, the financial fun hour, which is which for some people is a bit of an oxymoron, but I had it anyway. And, and I and I kind of what I did was I explained to anybody who wanted to listen, okay, here's what all these KPIs mean. Here's how we calculate them. This is what the definition is, and this is why it's important to us as a business. And I've had a lot of people, not just here at Fuse, but in prior lives as well, come into my house and say, hey, no one's ever given that information to us before. And it's so nice to hear that. And it's so it's so satisfying for us as employees to see that if we do X instead of Y, we can positively influence how those KPIs look. How do you communicate that type of information? Is this just an email or is there an employee newsletter? Or how do you package it uh, for that broader uh, group of employees you want to communicate to? Uh, we do it in the form of company meetings. So we have, um, you know, our, our technology is obviously such that, uh, that uh, you know, not only do we have voice, we have collaboration and, and, and meetings built into our platform. So it's, it's a great presentation uh, tool for, for anybody who wants to do an, an all-hands type meeting as well. So, so what I'll generally do is put together a PowerPoint presentation that kind of walks through the KPIs, uh, looks at how we're performing right now versus how we've done historically. And then um, you know, it usually takes, you know, 30 to 35 minutes, followed by 20 to 25 minutes of Q&A. Um, but that's, that's how we present it. As a privately held company, um, obviously we don't, have, uh, we, do, we don't have newsletters circulating or financials circulating. Um, you know, that will come at some point in the future. Now, this is interesting because we have talked about uh, to finance leaders uh, of different size companies. And I'm finding that many in perhaps uh, the size company that Fuse is finding that more information sometimes can be a wonderful way of educating employees. It's, it's great for morale. They understand better some of the decision-making that's being handed down when they're educated more as to what the challenges and, and opportunities are. I, that's absolutely right. And then the, the, the tricky part is, I mean, let's face it, uh, I mean, the economy always goes through down cycles as well, right? So, um, and, and businesses uh, aren't always uh, as robust as you'd like them to be. So there, there are times where maybe the KPIs don't look quite so great. And, and, and the, the risk you run with being very transparent to your employees is you have to continue to be transparent because if all of a sudden you stop being transparent, they're going to draw conclusions that you may not want them to be drawing. So, um, you know, that's, that's one of the things that I've worked, with, worked at fairly, fairly carefully in the past as well. But, again, even if the news that you presented to them isn't so great, people still want to hear that. 
um, because you know I mean, no news is bad news. So um, you know I think I think it's important that for you to build trust with the employees, um, and the more you, the more you disclose them and talk to them and want and tell them why this is important and what it means, you know the more they can handle it. When hey, maybe maybe the uh, maybe a certain KPI didn't trend the way we wanted to trend, and, and but you can also say, okay guys, here's how we can fix this. And here's what it means to us. If you don't disclose it, you're not going to get it fixed. I want to uh, touch on the talent economy with you. And uh, I think it's interesting. You're a, a tech firm uh, based in the, the Boston area. And I think uh, from the balance of your career, it looks to me uh, uh, that uh, you might have built your career there as well. Is that, is that true? I had, a, I had a stint in Dallas, Texas. But other than that, uh, yes, I've been in, I've been in Boston my entire career. And Boston, of course, is a um, pretty competitive market for talent. Uh, some educational institutions dot the uh, landscape up there. So, But what would you tell us in terms of uh, building the workforce and how you view the competitive landscape for talent up there today? I mean, you're right. It is very competitive. Um, and there are a bunch of things you can do to, to, to make yourself uh, more attractive to people. One of the things we've done here is we've just moved into a real nice office uh, at, at Copley Square in Boston, which is right in the heart of downtown. Um, we've done things that we have we have a snack wall. We have all kinds of healthy and, in some cases, not so healthy snacks available to people as, as much as they want. Um, it's, you, know, you do it in such a way it doesn't cost you that much money, but it creates kind of a fun environment to work in. Um, you know, it's little things like uh, you know having uh, you know bright bright offices, having a lot of functions going on. Um, and again, I keep coming back to this: having a real transparent management team that, that makes employees feel like they're part of solving the problem. I think goes a long way as well. Um, you know, some of us have worked for companies that haven't been that way, and you know, you tend to get into that boiler room mentality where people are just kind of going through the. The, the paces of the office, and they don't really understand why they're doing what they're doing. You know, again, I keep coming back to the fact that if people understand uh, what, what it is they're doing and how it's helping the business move forward, I think it makes it a real, a real good place to work, and that's how we've been successful in both attracting and, and retaining uh, good people here in this office. Wondering about, uh, and I don't know if this is something, I'm sure it was quite the conversation uh, a few uh, years back when GE moved up there after years of having this campus in Connecticut had decided uh, no matter the costs of uh, occupying city real estate, uh, Boston was where they wanted to be, I guess, for talent. Well, it, I, I think it's, it, I think it's, it's, it's as much a positive as a negative. I don't think that people that, uh, that want to come to work for a venture-backed uh, technology company are the same people that want to go to work for General Electric, um, although in some cases that may, that may happen. Um, I, I'm just guessing that GE's benefits are probably better than Fuse's. Um, but at the end of the day, I think the upside of, of, of working for Fuse is probably far greater than the upside of working at GE. As far as skill sets go, um, you know, I, I, there's probably not that much overlap. Um, you know, from an engineering standpoint, uh, people that are doing the things they need to be doing here at Fuse probably don't have a, 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 an opportunity at GE. So um, I, I don't worry about losing talent to GE as much as I w worry about um, – you know, just uh, you, having having them in the market, kind of driving up other types of costs for people. Uh, housing housing has gotten particularly expensive in Boston, um, given that there, there's a lot of people moving in here. Office space has gotten expensive, so there's only so much land to go around when you're surrounded by uh, by almost 40 percent of the city surrounded by water. For someone like yourself, who clearly 
has uh, worked closely with the venture community, investors, and in building these types of technology firms. You clearly chose uh, a resource-rich region, and you were able to fairly well stay planted there. Now, Silicon Valley, obviously another fertile region. But what considerations would you advise other finance executives to uh, to examine as they look to build their careers in a in a given region? Yeah, you know, you know, it's interesting. When I was in college, I, I took a uh, I took a course called Technology, Information, and Public Policy, and this was I don't want to date myself, but technology was still kind of a, a new thing at that point from a, from, a, from an economy standpoint. I think I think the the VC world was probably a, a a small fraction of what it is today. And one of the things that one of my professors said to me that's resonated with me to this day is. He said markets like Boston and Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley, and, and to an extent New York City as well, um, but in particular Boston, he kind of focused on, will always be good. And, and one of the reasons is he said he, he described it as a hot mix. And in his mind, the hot mix was you've got some great educational institutions um, and you've got a lot of capital. Um, and, and you put those two things together and combine them with the fact that it's a place that people want to live. And you'll always have a pretty good economy there from a technology standpoint. And I think it's really come true. If you look at how many companies have been started uh, by MIT and Harvard grads here in Boston that just didn't want to move to you know, Cleveland or Chicago, not that there's anything wrong with those two cities, but um, you know, why would they do that, right? When, when they have right here, uh, they can, they, they've got access to venture capital, access to financial institutions, and access to, to freshly minted engineers coming out of some of the, some of the best uh, engineering schools in the world. So I would imagine that there has been a time during the course of your career, there was a recruiter from the Bay Area who said you should look at this opportunity. And did you look at it or did you say, no, I'm a, I, I like uh, the Northeast, I've, I've got family here, whatever it might have been. Again, I think these types of choices come up time and again for finance leaders, and I always try to shed light on them when uh, someone like yourself is speaking to us. Yeah, I mean, that, that, it, it definitely happened. Um, and, you know, I don't I, – I can't say that I wouldn't mind living out in the Bay Area. It's a, it's a beautiful area, and I feel like I spend uh, a, a lot of time out there as it is. Um, but, you know, for most of my career, I've had, uh, you know, two kids and a, and a wife at home as well. So, uh, you know, if you don't have to move, I'd rather not move. And, and none of the opportunities that I've seen – have been such that hey, it's worth picking up and and, and, and moving. So you know, so far, you know, knock on wood, the, the opportunities that I've seen here in Boston have been just as good as the opportunities I've been presented with out in the Bay Area. So I haven't found it a, a good reason to move. All right, Brian. Thank you for answering my uh, add-on questions here along the way. I do think it's interesting. Sure, and a lot no of people, problem. A lot of people would always wonder. Um, and a lot of people would envy the fact that you're able to build your career without having to move. Um, I, I did say I spent five years in Dallas, Texas. So um, that, that's right. You know, that, that, wasn't, that wasn't always the case. What and what brought you there again? That was that was actually my first CFO job. So um, you know, after nine years working for uh, you know Fleet Financial Group, which is now part of Bank of America, I went to law school, and um, you know my customer said, hey. That sounds like a career change in the offing. And I said, yeah, it, it is. And he said, well, it's going to be my CFO and in-house counsel. So I did it. And that was kind of how I got into the CFO world. Now, this is interesting. So it was really your legal background that allowed you, perhaps, to, to get in the door. That's correct. Um, and so uh, let's face it, though. I mean, you were not necessarily 
uh, trying to get on the CFO track back then. You were you're you're developing a you know trying to find your interests and developing a professional resume. But uh, who knew where it was going to lead? Or am I wrong? No, I think that's right. I, you know, it, it, I got halfway through law school and, and, and decided, hmm, I don't think I want to practice law. Um, but I finished it anyway. You know, obviously you get a, you got to finish what you start, and 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 uh, I think a law degree is a great thing to have. So, I, and I've fallen back on it several times, and I learned an awful lot in law school that I've been able to apply to to my to my life as a businessman. Um, but yeah, you, you're absolutely right. I, I didn't I certainly didn't go into law school expecting to become to be coming out of law school as a CFO. What skill set, though, did you have that allowed you to do that, to become a CFO? Because it seems to me once you got into that role, suddenly uh, there was a lot of, uh, you know, all the public accounting responsibilities or whatever it might have been you, you had to take on. I mean, what was your, uh, what was your next move? How did you beef up and, and uh, take your skill set to the level it needed to be? Or was there some experience in your past that really, uh, yeah. you know, yeah, I got I got a lot of financial experience when I was with uh, the bank. So um, you know, nine years in, in, in commercial banking, I got I, I do quite a little my way around financial statements. Um, and and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm not a CPA, but uh, I certainly understand how to read financial statements and prepare financial statements. So I think I had a pretty pretty solid grounding in that. Which uh, which without that, I, I certainly would not have been able to take on the opportunity down that I took on down in Dallas. What, one, last, one last shot here. Was it? Did you ever want to be in a large enterprise? Could you have gone that route as well? Could you have seen yourself climbing the ranks of a, of a, a giant corporation as well? Or, or was there some appeal to, uh, to the smaller venture-backed firms? Yeah, you know, I like building things. Um, and I'm sure you can build things in large enterprises, um, but I think you have to spend time figuring out where you can build things. Whereas in, in, in a venture-backed company, really of any size, you can build something every day, um, and, 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 and there's really no limit on that. So, uh, you know, that's, to me, that's what makes it fun to come into work. I, 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 you know, the, yeah, sure, there were days uh, when, you, you know, you wouldn't mind coming in and working for a large company and just having a few meetings to go to and, and, and leaving whenever you leave. But, you know, for me, what gets me excited and gets the juices flowing is, is coming in and, 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 and by the time I go home, I've made a difference that day and, and helped the company move forward. And I don't think that's always possible in a large enterprise. Okay, we're going to quickly move to the mentoring round now where I get to ask you several quick questions uh, intended to inspire and mentor future finance leaders. What's one thing that's exciting you about finance and business today? Um, I think what's really exciting about finance and business today is, is, is the, the, the myriad of growth opportunities out there. Um, you know, in, in business right now, I mean, we're, there's a, it, it feels like we've been saying this for 30 years now, but there's almost a revolution going on in the economy, and especially in the technology space, where, where um, you know, companies that may have been really cool technology six or seven years ago are, are dying on the line now, being replaced by companies with newer technology. So... Um, again, it comes back to working for a smaller company as opposed to a larger company. You've got to be you've got to be nimble to, to survive today, and um, I, I kind of enjoy that. that. That's exciting to me. So that first time you stepped into the CFO office, and I think we were it was in Dallas, as you just related. What do you wish someone had told you at the very start of that journey? I wish somebody had said to me, Brian, you think you know everything, you don't know anything. <laughs> 
you're going to learn so much in the next, uh, you know, six months, and and and, and uh, you be be prepared to drink from the fire hose because it's a lot harder than you think it is. And and and, and, I, and, and if I look back on it, I think it was. I mean, thankfully there was a pretty good team there. Um, and I think there were probably some people that were like, who's this? Who's this guy from Boston coming down here? Who's I don't know how old I was at the time, maybe 29 years old, something like that. Um, and, and what does he know that we don't? Um, and uh, the answer was, I probably didn't know much that they didn't know at that point in time. I was just I was lucky enough to uh, to uh, to uh, have, have gotten the, the the eye of the CEO who, who with whom I had a good relationship, and he put me in that role. So. Um, you know, it's, you, you learn a lot, and you 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 learn you learn a lot from the people that are around you, but also you learn a lot from people that work for you as well. So, um, you know, I, I try to befriend people as much as I can, and and and, and even you know the people that have you know accounts payable roles, accounts receivable roles, sitting down with them, learning about what they do every single day. How can they be more effective? How can I help them? Um, yeah, I, I mean that that was what I tried to do. I tried to go in and absorb as much as I could as quickly as I could. But um, uh, you know, anybody who's getting into the role, I, I think I think it's safe to say you don't you don't know how hard it's going to be because it's pretty tough. Now, do you have a personal habit that you believe has contributed uh, to your professional success? Yeah, you know, you know, the the habit I have is is, is and I think it's a good one for anybody is. Is identify the you know the KPIs that you want that you want to use as a business and and stick to them and, and track them relentlessly. Um, it's easy to get too busy to do that and then and then all of a sudden it's the twentieth of the month and you don't really know what your KPIs were for the prior month and because you're busy doing some fundraising or or busy doing some M and A work or something like that, but. You know, I think uh, you know one of the things that we talked about earlier. So, you know, what do I? What's the first thing I do every single day when I get here? Is I look at our KPIs. You know, and and, and, and some of them are, are pretty detailed KPIs. They're not not necessarily ones that I share with the whole company. What did we collect yesterday? What did we bill yesterday? Um, what were what were our overnight customer stat scores? What, what, how many support tickets came in last night? And, and when I come in the morning, that's the, the first thing I do is I start as a look at all these things because it gives me kind of a sense as to what's going on. Um, and I think it's important to do that every single day. Is there a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders? Well, the book I just finished reading, which I think is a great one, which is not which you probably would expect to hear because it's not your typical, uh, you know, it's, not, it's totally not one of those business books that people like to read. I just finished reading Team of Rivals uh, by Doris Kearns Goodwin about Abraham Lincoln and his administration. And what, it, 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 as I thought about how do I apply that to, to my life, you know, what, what Abraham Lincoln did was a great, he did a great job doing was, was taking people that may, maybe didn't think the same way he thought, but he got the best out of everybody. And you know when I when I put my when I put my uh, you know CFO hat on here at, at Fuse, I look around at the management team, and they're not all like me. And, and you know that's 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 a good thing. They shouldn't all be like me. Um, and there are some people that maybe think quite a bit differently, and people that have different opinions than I have. And what I've kind of learned uh, throughout my career is you've got to value people with different opinions. And, and you know when I go back and read that book and, and think about what I learned from that book. You know, that's what Lincoln did a great job of doing, and I think anybody who's in the business world can probably benefit from that kind of thinking. Brian, I understand there's an opportunity uh, where we can hear some of your thinking next month at the MIT Sloan CFO Summit that's going to be held there in Boston on November 16th. But um, what can you tell us a little bit about what you're going to be uh, exploring? 
Uh, my understanding is that I'm gonna, one, one of the topics that I'm going to be talking about is, is, is how to successfully fundraise. Um, and I've done an awful lot of that through my career. Um, it's, you know, I've been pretty successful at being able to attract capital and, and, and how to help uh, you know, businesses and, you know, build out uh, their financial models and business plans so that uh, they have the, the, the best opportunity they can to go uh, successfully uh, you know, raise money in the equity markets. Can we ask what uh, one of your takeaways uh, might be from your talk? Well, I think it's it's, it's really going to be uh, you know it, what I'm going to focus on is, is, is more than just uh, how a CFO goes about it, but how how uh, you know a CEO goes about this. And and so you know it's it's one thing to put together financial slides in a deck and go talk to investors about it. It's another thing to put together an entire deck and how does it hang together? How does how does the story tell? How do you uh, how do you how do you put how do you put the whole package together so that you're telling the story that you want to tell? And I think it's also important for people to realize that hey, different stories are can be told different ways to different types of investors as well. So you know, I think it's it's uh, you know one of the one of the things I'm going to talk about is don't get discouraged. Um, you know, I mean, Fuse has successfully raised over $300 million since since the company was founded. Most of it in the past uh, you know 36 months. Um, but for every investor that has invested in Fuse, Fuse has probably talked to like five or six others that, that, that passed on the opportunity. So um, not every investor wants to invest in every single company. And I think one of the things that, that uh, anybody who's out on the fundraising trail needs to realize is that um, you have to kiss a lot of frogs. Thought Leader listeners, don't forget, you can join Brian Day, CFO of Fuse and many other finance leaders at the MIT Sloan CFO Summit being held on November 16th in Boston. We'll be back right after these words from our sponsor. You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. Uh, what are your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months? And my priorities as a finance leader are to make sure that Fuse is prepared as it can be for what's going to happen to it in the, in the, in the coming years. So whether it's an IPO or whether it's some kind of other kind of liquidity event, um, I mean, clearly, you know, we're backed by, you know, private investors and private investors don't expect to have their money sitting in a company for, you know, 10 or 20 years. It's not certainly not building a lifestyle business. So I think we all need to be thinking about what's next on the horizon and how do we best prepare ourselves for that. So, you know, that, that's really when I, when I think about, uh, you know, what needs to happen here at Fuse and what I need to do to make sure that we have a successful ultimate outcome is, is, is make sure that we're as prepared as we can be uh, company-wide um, for that next step, whatever that next step may be. Brian Day, thank you for joining us on CFO Vault Leader. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the opportunity. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. And don't forget, Thought Leader listeners, you can now go premium at cfothoughtleader.com. 